Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts, and today I have as my guest, Suzanne Chabot. Suzanne Chabot is both a registered professional nurse and a licensed marriage family therapist. Most of her clinical experience has been in mental and community health. For Suzanne, the most rewarding time as a nurse has been working with inpatient psychiatric patients, battling eating disorders, as well as managing a clinic, providing care to high-need populations, including refugees from a variety of nations. As a therapist, Suzanne sees couples and adults. She has worked with a wide range of clientele from both Manhattan and central New York. Her areas of expertise also include relationship difficulties, navigating life cycle transitions, eating disorders, and anxiety. Suzanne's work works collaboratively with her clients utilizing somatic therapy techniques and narrative therapy as her foundation while also interweaving from the models of dialectical behavioral therapy, attachment theory, and the Gottman Method. Susan, welcome back to the Teaching Journeys podcast. And I'm saying welcome back because you were a guest during my first season. I where was. We, yes, where we talked about symbolic loss and had a really great and far-reaching discussion. And I would encourage our listeners, if they haven't listened to the episode on symbolic loss with Suzanne, check it out. We really had a, a really great conversation about symbolic loss and its impact on a loss related to death and how it impacts our lives in general. So with that, we are uh, going to be going off in a real different direction today. We're going to be talking about past life experiences, and if we're calling this episode Past Life Experiences All in the Family. Suzanne's going to be sharing her personal experience um, with past life experiences as it relates to her family. And also we're going to talk about it from a therapeutic and also from a scientific-based background, too. We're going to see where science fits in with all of this or doesn't, so to speak. So how did I do? Is that, was that a good summation? That was wonderful. Very concise. So good to be back. Oh, bringing in the fall. We brought in, I think, spring together, and now we're bringing in the fall together. I know. Geez, pretty soon we're going to have to bring in the winter together. We're going to have to cover uh, all four seasons. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we might have to break up the year a little bit with some fun. Yeah, we're, we're gonna. Yeah, I think we're gonna probably have to do that. But, but anyway, are you ready to go? I'm ready. All right. Yeah. So for for those who missed our first episode, tell our listeners more about the mission of Heart and Hand Therapy, and how did you come up with the name? So yeah, so um, in my last episode with you, uh, I talked a lot about being very holistic uh, as far as just as a human being, but then also how I practice. And, you know, I have degrees from all areas of, when you think of holistic, it's body, mind, spirit. I have a degree in psychology and religious studies, and then went on uh, to nursing school and um, marriage and family therapy master's degree. So it brings in all the spirit, the body, the mind. And 
when I was trying to come up with a name for my private practice, my mom actually suggested heart in hand. And I really uh, latched on to that, that idea because it really symbolizes everything. It encompasses everything. Um, holding a heart in your hand, right? There's that physical aspect of your hand and then the heart representing um, your emotional, vulnerable, tender parts. And that's really what I'm doing is I'm holding that space for people so they can explore themselves, they can explore their relationships with others, and I'm modeling that for them as well. So it represents all of that. And also, I, I just took a look at, and I forgot to mention that in your bio, so that <laughs> you are also the the owner, creator of Heart and Hand Therapy. So I apologize for that oversight. And for Suzanne and my listeners, I promise this will be the only mistake I make for the rest of the day. Oh, that's not a mistake. It's fine. I, no need to apologize. All right. Well, but, but I just wanted to, to do that. Throw in the human factor a little bit. So yeah. um, so tell me, how did you develop an interest in past life experiences? Was your interest due to personal experiences, professional interests, or both? Well, it started off, actually, when I was a teenager and my brother uh, was about, we're about 12 years apart. So we have a big age difference. And he was probably about four or five years old, somewhere in that range. And he had an experience with my mother one evening that um, there was no really other explanation that we could give to it other than this could perhaps be a past life of his. I don't know if you want me to go into that story now. Want me to go into that story? Absolutely. Sure. So... One evening, my mom was making dinner, and my mom typically makes like Mediterranean meals. She's Italian-American descent, right? So she's making something with sour cream. Uh, she had never cooked with sour cream really uh, over those years with my brother, so he had never been exposed to sour cream. And he was in the other room watching TV, and he came in and he saw her with the big container of sour cream. And again, he's four, so... The child cannot read. And he looked at it and he goes, oh, oh, my gosh, sour cream. I love sour cream. I, I used to cook with it all the time. So my mom looked at him like, oh, my goodness, what is this child talking about? So she's like, OK, I'm just going to go with it. So she says, well, Matthew, she's like, you've never had sour cream before. And he said, yes, I have. I used to cook with it all the time. She goes, well, who did you cook with it uh, for? He says, "My well, I cooked with it mostly for my grandchildren uh, and my husband, too, but he was no good. But I really my grandchildren. So he's like carrying on this conversation with her, like not as a four year old right, mm -hmm. would speak, not as how he typically spoke. So she continued to ask him questions. Um, and she asked him, oh, well, so where did you live? And he said, well, I lived in the city. And she was like, well, what city? What are you talking about? And annoyingly because she didn't get it. He was like, well, New York City, of course. So she, so then she, he wanted some sour cream. She gave him a bite of sour cream and he went into the other room and was kind of back to himself. But then periodically over the course of that year, he, she would find him in his bedroom, gazing out the window and looking sad. Um, and my parents live in a house that overlooks downtown Utica. So, uh, you know, there's like a little bit of a skyline. Obviously, it doesn't look like Manhattan, but uh, she would ask him, you know, what's, are you okay? And he'd just say, I just miss the city. And so she would 
ask again, like, what are you talking about? Downtown Utica? What do you mean? And he's, he's, no, New York. I miss New York City. So um, that created quite a bit of anxiety in her. But then she started to explore uh, the concept of reincarnation and um, the research and the people that have been investigating it with other narrative and, you know, stories, uh, mostly in other nations that are more accepting Mm -hmm. of the idea of reincarnation, Mm -hmm. not so much in America, because we are primarily a monotheistic religious culture. And we don't really accept that idea or maybe listen to our children when they are, are speaking, mm-hmm. you know, speaking in, in, uh, with these memories. So that's where it all started. Uh, it's much easier to believe a child because what does a child have to gain for telling a story like that? Or how could they could even use the language that they use? So that's where it all started. And then I would say probably developed over the years uh, as I learned to took courses in my undergraduate degree and learning about different religions. And um, for me, just intuitively, like for me, it makes the most sense. I can, because I am, I am, I pull from science and logic and I know in any religion, you need to have some sort of faith and belief. But for me, it made the most sense. And, you know, what you described with your brother is really not unlike other experiences that I've read about. Um, There were two researchers at the University of Virginia, Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker, and they were both MDs. They were Mm -hmm. both psychiatrists, I believe. And Jim Tucker now is the director of, uh, I think, uh, perceptual studies, the Department of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. And I think back in the early 2000s and prior, they did reincarnation studies with over 2,500 children. And they had a set of very specific uh, criteria to determine whether or not they felt it was probable that a child had an experience with reincarnation. Using that criteria, they discovered that 1,200 of those cases were solved, which meant that there was a good probability that that child had had a reincarnation experience. Um, and they had to, they also discussed some specific characteristics. And these were individuals that were science-based mm-hmm. that discovered a lot of you know, metaphysical philosophies and, uh, you know, spiritual practices that they could integrate. Yeah. And, you know, they found that you know, maybe science by itself could not explain what, what they had, had seen. And there's also, for the listeners out there, there's a really good documentary on Netflix called Surviving Death, which goes into a lot of Tucker's and, and Stevenson's work and a lot about other virtual aspects of grief and, and reincarnation as well. So I think it's a five or six part series, but mm-hmm. it's one that if individuals want to get a really um, good introduction and overview of all things metaphysical and, and spiritual as it's related to reincarnation and other aspects uh, they, I would suggest that documentary. Yeah. I actually, now that you mentioned Jim Tucker, I emailed Jim Tucker later on, probably when I was in college about this, mm-hmm. this story with my brother. And he responded to me and he told me that he believes that to be the case based on what I said, but it was something that he couldn't confirm because my brother is now an adult and has no memory of it. But yeah. I was validating, you know, to get a response from him pretty cool because he's one of those primary researchers out there. Um, 
Yeah. And my, I think it's people probably have more stories than that we realize, but we just don't listen to our children because they have very wild imaginations and they probably don't really think of it as anything, um, you know, of, of that nature of that. This, this is a possibility, right? It's too yeah. out there for a lot of people in our culture. Well, you know, the thing is with children too, they're so unfiltered and they're, they're not capable of, of, of making up any elaborate fantasies with that much detail. And that much abstraction, you know, there's just no way. I mean, he, your brother had specific recall of being in New York City, uh, working with sour cream. Um, he had that specific memory. And he's telling his mother, I miss the city. So, mm -hmm. I mean, he actually came in to this, to, to this incarnation of himself with those past life memories. Um, and, you know, children just, I think between the ages of three and seven is where they develop the height of their intuitive abilities and particularly children are going to be more receptive to, to uh, signs from our loved ones. Just because I think of, I think of, of both the high alpha and perhaps theta brainwave activities as well too, that allows them to, um, to develop the, their, their intuitive side. So I mean with kids that they're believable, they're, they're not capable of making up those kind of elaborate uh, fantasies or lies. Yeah. So now that you said that, um, I have two other stories. One is is not as specific, but it has to do with my daughter and my mom's dog, uh, who has we had to put down this this past year. She was uh, the sweetest Labrador mix, and she had experienced like she was rescued, she, a lot of trauma, um, and she was younger when my daughter was a baby. She was very protective of her, and then. As my daughter started to reach the age uh, to use language, she would call her Iowa and she mm -hmm. wouldn't call her Jasmine, even if my mother corrected her like, oh, she's Jasmine or Jazzy or whatever. Right. These little other nicknames. But Iowa, she was no, nope, she was Iowa. And so <clears throat> we looked into what I why what meant in other languages, because Elena was so. Uh, insistent that she was Iowa. And it's actually a term in voodoo. Um, it's a spiritual, uh, it's sort of like the, a bridge between a human and like the gods, this like spiritual entity that is a protector of sorts. Um, so I thought, I always wondered if that had, you know, there was some sort of connection because that is a totally different language. And mm -hmm. she was so, she was just not having it. She was not going to be re redirected or she wasn't going to use a different name for that dog. I mean, she's still Iowa. We still call mm -hmm. her Iowa. <laughs> well, and again, to, to, to have your daughter come in. How old's your daughter again? She's 10 She's now. 10. And how old was she when she had that experience? It was from the, the day she could start speaking. Okay. She called her Iowa. Yeah. So basically, you know, she came in at you know, two or three years old, you know, just having that distinct memory of being perhaps in a different culture, doing a different language and, and remembering a dog or, or some, somebody else by the name of Iowa. And that's what, what, what she used. And I mean, again, I think with both Jim Tucker's and Ian Stevenson's research, um, I think it demonstrated that for the evolution of our souls, and I'm paraphrasing this, paraphrasing this, that we can incarnate into different cultures, different races, just so we can we can get an understanding of of humankind to live in a world in a peaceful world in a world that's mm -hmm. 
that is characterized by tolerance and just welcoming individuals from all different perspectives. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, you know, <clears throat> the last story I have, and that, that's a good segue when you say to really be open and receiving, and it also mm -hmm. dips into like the therapeutic world too. But when um, I brought my brother's story up to my mother-in-law, which prompted her to tell me about our niece, my sister-in-law's daughter, when she was about four or five, again, same age as my brother, um, herself, my niece, and my father-in-law were walking in a park in Long Island. And they're walking along a path. It was heavily wooded. And she, my niece, was... Um, insistent about a lake down in the bottom like of the hill that was all wooded so you couldn't really see past anything the, other than the trees and she said that she used to live down there when she was born of a different mother and that there was a lake down there and so she mm -hmm. wanted to see the lake and so she was insistent and my mother-in-law I, I don't think really um I don't know if she cared to go down there she was just like this is odd she's she's speaking like it seemed like old English, like it was a very bizarre way that she started to talk. <laughs> so my father-in-law said, well, she really wants to go down there. So I'm, I'm going to take her down there and just see, like, just out of curiosity and, you know, to support her. Because mm -hmm. he and he so he took her down here, down there. The two of them went down and my mother-in-law waited for them. And then they came back up. And he said to her, well, so there's a dried lake bed down there. So um, somehow she knew that, yeah, you know, but he that would have never happened if they were open and willing to just be with her and, mm -hmm. you know, take her down there and be attuned to, to what she was saying. And you know, a lot more of our children are coming into this world with highly intuitive abilities. And, you know, we you know, you've heard the, the discussions about indigo children, crystal children, um, but. Many of the in young adults that I have worked with do have those intuitive abilities where they can look at the world and experience the world multi-sensory and also multi-dimensionally. Um, so it's something that when that happens, when you get a, a child at, at a young age saying, coming in with distinct memories of a past lifetime, we need to pay attention to that and realize that they've come in with a at least for the moment, or maybe even permanently, that they're going to look at the world multidimensionally, multisensory, and we need to be able to respect that and honor that and be willing to work with that. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to, like, arguing the case, like arguing the case, I always have to, I always feel like I have to argue the case for everything. <laughs> That's just me. <clears throat> and well, I, I would look at it as not arguing, but you're presenting both sides of the argument. Well, and that, yeah, and, yeah. And that that's a big part of critical thinking. You know, we have to we have to present both sides of the argument. Let people find their truth within, you know, those perspectives. Sure. And, well, I think it's also part of like this holistic thing where I'm like, oh, I got to pull in science. I have to pull in philosophy. I have to pull in the emotional parts and the the multicultural dimensions and. So when I was researching reincarnation, I found a pretty vast, like, variety of um, theories and information out there on, on why reincarnation is, is possible. 
um, whether it be through, and I, I wrote down everything and I am, it is way above my head. Like some of this stuff is quantum physics. Okay. Um, so I am not even going to begin to dip into it other than my very simple understanding and grasp. But, um, so if I'm going to go, I'm going to go from the most, um, not out there, but harder for me to understand. There were like mm, three, maybe four ideas that I came across from a variety of different disciplines. The first one is quantum physics, right? And mm-hmm. the, and most of these most of these articles in literature quote Stevenson and um, what's his name having Jim. a brain fart, Jim, Jim Tucker, Jim, yeah, Jim, our buddy Jim. Um, so quantum physics is the idea when you bring in reincarnation that there's this relationship between consciousness and our physical world and that we don't need the physical world for consciousness, that consciousness perhaps um, or the physical world can grow out of our consciousness. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe there's a physicist that is listening to this podcast and they can weigh in. That would be great and explain it in layman's term. <laughs> But that's my understanding, very simplistic understanding of it. The other one that I felt like dips into it a little bit too is, so there was uh, another article that I read on uh, philosophically speaking, if you, and if you think about the human body, that our cells are constantly dying and then we have new cells. But our consciousness does not shift or change throughout mm-hmm. all of that. So like our physical selves are constantly being, are being renewed, but that's not happening with our consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. So playing around with that idea, right? Our beingness remains constant. It's unchanging. And so mm-hmm. when our bodies die, where does our consciousness go, right? Um, that was in the Journal of Psychiatry, actually. It's called The Mystery of Reincarnation. And that was... Uh, a journal I found from 2013. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you fact check on this. I'm just letting you know. I can send you all of my articles and research. <laughs> I yeah, I think that'd be good because I could post some of those in the show notes if individuals yeah. want to you want to research it further. So sure, send me what you got. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing was epigenetics. Have you heard of epigenetics? I've heard of the term, but I'm not familiar with it. So this is going yeah. to be your time to educate me. So yes, I'm the professor today. Yes, yep. you are, and I'm the and I'm simply the student, which goes to the to the <laughs> to the mantra of this podcast: is we're all yeah. students and teachers, so let's learn from each other. So I'm going to be the student; you're going to be the teacher. Yeah, yeah. So epigenetics is really is really cool, and I feel like it pulls into. It's another thing that pulls into the therapeutic world when it comes to generations and patterns and um, navigating change. So epigenetics is essentially the idea that our genes carry generational trauma, that our bodies are affected by that, and that goes down to our genome. So it is sort of an extension, epigenetics, the argument is that the multi-generational trauma, we have this genetic memory from generation to generation. And so this re- idea of reincarnation is an extension of epigenetics. It is uh, essentially, from what I understand, like a soul genome, right, mm-hmm. that we I pull from. 
And again, dipping into the world of psychology and therapy, this concept uh, really overlaps with Carl Jung and his idea of the collective unconscious. And we have like, you know, from nation to nation, generation to generation across the world, uh, collectively, you know, these archetypes and symbols and um, all part of our unconscious, you know, we have these dreams and they symbolize these things and it dips into narrative, like the narrative work I do with my clients, mm -hmm. which is the meaning underneath things that, you know, so there's epigenetics, there's the generational stuff, the patterns, right? And then the overlap with that, with past lives, potentially. And then um, the collective unconscious. And certainly with dreams, one of the things and I, that I've discovered in terms of my own, you know, research and reading about, you know, reincarnation is that we can have dreams that could also, you know, signal that, you know, signal a past life experience or past life experiences. Like for me, I came into this lifetime and I believe my soul has done this many, many times before. I believe in past lives, I believe in reincarnations. Again, just from my own my own personal experiences, yeah. And particularly with, you know, some of the things that happened with me uh, after my daughter Janine's transition in two thousand and three. Um, you know, it's just it, it's, and I really, I really firmly believe that. And one of the one of the dreams that I had had was I dreamt that I was being pushed off a mountain, and of course, I, I before I hit the the bottom, I woke up. But the but I came into this lifetime being very very deathly afraid of heights, mm -hmm. and I woke up and the first thing I said now I know why I'm afraid of heights. So that's the first thing that came to me, that in a in a past life experience perhaps I died a traumatic death from either a fall from a building or being pushed off a building, and I came into this lifetime being extremely uh, fearful of heights and of falling, you know, off a building or a ladder or things like that or things similar to that. So. Yeah. It's very possible too, right? Like that we, mm -hmm. when there's, there's no explanation for, for a phobia or a fear no. and um, that can all be weighed into, you know, the, epi the idea of epigenetics that we carry that through generationally or like this idea of a soul genome that yeah. this was, you know, a past, past life experience. Well, the dovetail off of that with, with Brian Weiss's work, Brian Weiss was a psychiatrist who wrote a book, a monumental book on mm -hmm. past lives and reincarnation called Many Lives and Many Masters. And he wrote that, I believe, in 1986. And he was a psychiatrist at the time. I think it was in, at the University of Miami. I think it was their medical hospital. He was a, the, clinic, the, the chief clinical psychologist. And he worked with a young woman whom he called Catherine whom he discovered under regression hypnosis that she, her soul had lived 86 previous lifetimes. And 13 of those lifetimes were impacting on her ability to, to find peace in this lifetime. So once he was able to discover that, that peace, he was able to, to, to under hypnosis and he recorded every session with her. Mm. He was able to to, they were able to collaboratively take a look at what had happened in her past lifetimes address, and address the, um, the challenges from those lifetimes in turn in, to, to, to find peace in her current lifetime. So it uh, was monumental work. And Weiss, again, was another MD who discovered mm -hmm. 
the world of metaphysics, the world of, of, of quantum physics, um, and, and spiritual and holistic practices. And when you have a scientist who is now in, is now integrating some of this stuff, it's something that we need to look at. It doesn't mean we have to agree with it, but mm-hmm. it's something that I think we need to consider when this is these these findings are coming from individuals with science-based backgrounds. Yeah. And the, I mean, the idea of reincarnation really, I mean, it goes back to the first millennium BC. It goes back to Plato and Asian religions, Hinduism. I mean, there's also something to that, Hmm. you know, that there is, this concept is not new and it has lasted to this day. Yep. Right. There's there's roots there. To dovetail off of what I talked about with Brian Weiss's work, do you believe that understanding our challenges from past life experiences can help individuals address the challenges in their current lifetimes? If so, how do you feel that is the case? So I would never pretend that I would even know how to begin doing any type of therapy with somebody to try to pull their past lives up. But I think that for me, um, overall, the past influences the present. So whether it be um, somebody talking about their child, right, having an experience and being open to that, potentially, or an adult speaking Let's say my brother walks through the door. Obviously, he wouldn't be my client, but somebody like my brother walks through the door and was um, he told me that story about, oh, when I was little, I was told this happened to me. Hmm. That could be information that could help me um, pull from other stuff within his life as far as his behavior, his emotions, his relationships, and how that informs the present. Just like epigenetics does, just like generational trauma does, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Makes, per- so, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that would be my, um, that would be my answer, like a very concise answer to that. Okay. In your research on past lives, mm-hmm. what are some events that you've discovered that could inform individuals that they might have had past life experiences? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, again, like this is this. My mind always goes to the stories of children. So somebody's past or if somebody's bringing in uh, a story from their child to not ignore those voices. Don't don't ignore this. Your voice as a child, your child voice or this the children of our lives. Um, And that. The idea that I spoke of before about that collective unconscious and that that really is a big way that I, even though I might not really be like, oh, you know, this person might have had a past life that might not be at the forefront of my mind because I, I, uh, it would be a case by case scenario too, right? Like I think a lot of my clients might not be too um, accepting or open to the idea of reincarnation per se. Um, so it would be a case-by-case scenario uh, or situation um, as far as specifically bringing that up. But the application, uh, as far as I work as a therapist with narrative work and bringing in um, 
like the systems of multi-generational trauma or just generational patterns. I'm trained systemically as a marriage and family therapist. That all plays a role in there. If they bring a dream in, I talk about the archetypal archetypal stuff, the symbolism of the dream. All of that plays into it. Um, yeah. So the collective unconscious, listening and being open to the voices of our child, our children, and then our parts, our child parts. So what are one or two things that the audience can learn from your brother's and daughter's experiences with past lives, your own personal research, uh, your own therapeutic work that may help our listeners effectively transcend challenges or understand what their true purpose is in this current their current lifetime. Whoa. I think it's the message that well the world is not so black and white, right or wrong, us versus them. I'm alone. We are much more connected and need the connection. And I think that the idea of saying, you know, again, the collective unconscious or sharing so many different stories, even if it would, it's from past lives, right? That, that is, that is the message that we can learn from one another, that we're all connected and that being open-minded and um, looking for the connections with each other. I mean, it's, I don't think it's any mistake that Carl Jung, who had these ideas hundreds of years ago, um, also was one of the main proponents and participants in creating Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a 12-step program that pulls in spirituality and like connection with people. Mm -hmm. Like that program is now the main template for so many other support groups, right? That we are not alone, that people actually have these shared experiences. I know I, I feel like I'm going off on a tangent, but really it's about, you know, it is there's this connection and like a collective, a collective presence. Yeah, because if you believe that we have all been connected, even in past lifetimes, and Brian Weiss also talked about this in his own research, he talked about that we travel in soul groups. We will travel with the same group of souls over different lifetimes. We will contract with those souls to be in, in different relationships with each other. Like, for example, you and I could have been brother and sister in a past lifetime. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and essentially, we contract in different relationships in the physical incarnation for the evolution and greater teachings of our soul. And so when you talked about the epigenetics piece in the soul genome, that also got me thinking about Weiss's discoveries about soul contracts. Um, so, and the other part, if we truly have, in accord to Stevenson's and uh, Tucker's research, that we have incarnated into different cultures, different, different ethnic groups, different religious backgrounds, that should give us a greater sense of connection with everybody. Mm -hmm. If, in fact, we have, we believe or buy into the concept that our, our souls have done the physical dance of life 
many, many times over the past. Mm. So, and, and I, I love that piece about, yeah, and we all are connected. Animals, plants, we all share the same DNA. I mean, Maury Schwartz said this, I think, in his book. He said, there's not that much, and I'm paraphrasing this book, Tuesdays with Maury. There's not mm. that much a difference about us. We're all, we all come in this world the same way. We all go out the same way. You know, it, it's, and it's like there's that similarity. Yet, you know, we're, we're not that much different, but we, we emphasize the differences rather than the similarities at times. And I think we need to find more common ground. If we did, I keep saying the world would be a better place. Yeah. And it's there. It exists. <laughs> uh-huh. It does. You know, it, it's similar to the idea when you say like this, like the grouping of the souls, like the contracts. Yep. Makes me think of like, there's only so many melodies. Like I'm not a musician. I'm not going to pretend. But there's only so many ways you can put notes together and make a melody. Yet we still are creating all this music, right? Mm -hmm. Over and over again. I feel like that's a very similar concept that we only have so much energy, so many like souls. Yeah. that and we're we're putting them you know there's you're recreating different people but that substance there like that melody is still mm -hmm. is still the foundational piece yeah i would agree yeah. so my last question okay. i could uh -huh. talk i could talk to you for about another hour or two yeah but, we, but we'll we'll get together for another lunch at karen's middle east bakery at some point Yes. Oh, we have to find an oh, excuse for that. Yeah, we have to find an excuse to get 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 to Karim. So, but anyway, how can people get in touch with you? Find out more about your services and any other events that you're a part of. So, this is your time to promote yourself a little bit. Okay, sure. Well, I'm just going to say two things. Uh, one, I, I'll just give out my website because on my website I have all my contact information and uh, my Instagram and all of that. So that is heartinhandtherapy.com, and that's heart spelled H-E-A-R-T, inhandtherapy.com. And then uh, for anybody that is awake early in the mornings on Wednesdays, I am usually on as a guest on Wednesday morning on the radio station Late 98.7, which can be streamed across the country on the app Late 98.7. Uh, and it's on hump day when we talk about all all things relationships. They usually give me some scenarios to comment on and, um, you know, I'll peel apart. <laughs> and and I would recommend that you tune into Suzanne's radio show. And if you know somebody that needs therapy in any of the areas that she specializes in, look her up. She does great work, does great compassionate care, and she's knowledgeable, competent. And and one of the most ethical therapists that I've ever run into. And, Thank you, Dave. Well, you're welcome. You're so and, Well, thanks. Um, and Suzanne, thanks again for for joining uh, joining me again on the Teaching Journeys podcast. It's always a blast when we get together and talk. Anyway, agreed. All right. So with that, with that. That's a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.